Now this morning, as we prepare to dig into God's Word, I want to start with a story from this week in my life. You see, I had a little bit of a crazy experience this past Monday as I was leaving work. I got into my car, if if you guys recall, Monday, like the majority of the beginning of the week, pretty cold. Got into my car and started driving home from work, right? Tough day at work, ready to head home. And as I turned onto 13th Avenue, all of a sudden, my car just stopped going. It just stopped. The engine was going. But as I accelerated, all it would do is the speedometer would go like this, and the engine would rev, but I wasn't going anywhere. Now, almost right away, a a cop pulls up behind me. You know, I'm the idiot's sitting in the middle of the road going, I don't know what's going on here. And he says, what's going on here? And I tell him, I I don't know. All of a sudden, my car just won't go. So he said, Okay, let's let's go ahead and push you off to the side of the road. We got to get you out of harm's way here. You know, it's it's rush hour in Jamestown for crying out loud. And uh, so he he pushes me to the side, right? And I'm I jump out. I, I look under my car, and and I don't know what's going on. I I'm not a mechanic. I'll be honest. And uh, and so I just know that I'm going to have to get my car to the mechanic sometime soon, right? And so. But as I start to get out of my car, you know, as my mind's racing, what do I need to do? Who's, who's going to help me? What's going to happen here? Um, you know, the, the biggest thing that was on my mind is, you know, why do I live here? <laughs> you know, why, why am I here in this place when my car breaks down that three seconds out of, after being outside my car, I can't feel my face anymore? Why why am I here? But as I started texting and calling around to try and find a tow rope, the Lord revealed to me why I'm here. Right? I'm here because there's a group of people that's committed to each other, no matter what. People that are willing to get out with you in negative 20 degree weather and help you get your car to the mechanic. You know, within 10 minutes of my car sitting on 13th Avenue stalled, I had four guys from my community group willing to help in any way they could. Although none of those guys had a tow rope. I had, <laughs> I had fellow elder Larry Mosier here who just got done with work himself and said, you know, why don't I, I have a tow rope. And in fact, why don't I just come over, I'll tow you over to the mechanic. Right, And the beautiful thing is that I know the response would have been similar if instead of saying my car is broken, I said my marriage feels broken. Or my resolve feels broken because I can't find a good enough job to support my family. Or my heart is broken. Because my dad doesn't know that he has Jesus as a Savior. You see? Man, this is a good way to start. May you see, we're all hurting. We're all broken. And we all bear guilt and shame. 
right? We get anxious, we get stressed, we complain, we feel apathetic. But the antidote isn't isolation, right? The antidote isn't even coming here once a week to worship and hear the word preached, right? Although that's part of it. No, the antidote to our brokenness is Jesus. And Jesus has created the local church, a people set apart from the world to serve each other and encourage each other with the gospel, right? As we draw closer Together, we understand that we truly need each other, right? That the expression of the local church and the deep-rooted connection of Christ as our Savior is his method for saving the world. His method for saving the world is the person to your left and to your right. One soul at a time, one disciple at a time. So I urge us this morning that we have quite a few people here that, that are here on Sunday morning. We have been blessed abundantly with the amount of people that want to hear the word preached. But I urge each one that's here to truly dig in to living life together, to truly connecting and understanding what's going on in the world of the person who's sitting right next to you. Now, at Buffalo City Church, we have community groups, right? A way to try and allow us to be intentional about committing to each other, right? A time where we come together to be intentional about hearing about what's going on in the lives of those around us. And so, I urge us this morning, as we look at the person to our left and right, invite someone to your community group. Ask someone, if you're not invited or a part of a community group, about community group. Invite yourself into the lives of other people this morning, because we never know when the person right next to us is going to need us until we start truly being invested in each other's lives. So with that, let's transition towards scripture. As a quick reminder of the journey that we've taken in God's word together, we spent most of last year and the first few weeks of this year walking through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 with the overarching theme related to God's care for our inward heart position, right? A higher and unattainable standard of the law that can only be accomplished through the life and work of Christ Jesus. Now, this morning, we're going to step away from the Sermon on the Mount and jump into 1 Peter, looking at verses 13 through 21. Now, anytime we approach Scripture, we need to remind ourselves what this book, the Bible, is and what it is not. Because if you're like me, I think it can easily be turned into a a self-help book, right? This idea, a search to understand how I can be better or how I can achieve to be better, right? But 
I want to remind us this morning, and one of the best explanations that I've seen in what the Bible is and what the Bible is not actually comes from this book that I read to my boys in the morning. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. You know, when I, Lord prompted me to uh, bring the Jesus Storybook explanation of what the Bible is and the Bible is not, I chuckled to myself because um, if Caleb was up here, he would be giving you Calvin and Edwards and uh, Dietrich von Bonhoeffer, but I brought you the storybook Bible. So it says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away at times. They are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. So, as we dig into 1 Peter this morning, I implore us to focus on this story which helps us understand who God is. Right? And as children of Christ, with his spirit dwelling inside of us, who we are and how we are to respond because of our identity in Christ. Now, at this time, if you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, uh, via your own hard copy or electronic copy, uh, I'd encourage you to grab a Bible from the table there in the middle. Um, And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, I encourage you, please take one from the table. The greatest gift that we can provide you here at Buffalo City Church is the Word of God. So please, we have plenty of copies. Take it with you. If you have a friend that's in need of Scripture, that's in need of a Bible, take one. Take two. Take them all. Pass out the Word. Uh, Allow it to be our guide. As we approach 1 Peter, let's pray. Dear Lord, As we approach your word and learn from your divine guidance and teaching, please allow the words to penetrate our minds, but most importantly, let it guide our hearts. Allow us to experience an inward transformation, a deeper understanding of you and our need for a Savior. 
Lord, we pray that you would allow my words to be your words, that only your truth would be heard and understood. Lord, we recognize that this time of committing your word to our hearts is not to be taken lightly, but is an opportunity to know you more and grow in obedience to you out of love. Help us in this moment to move aside any distractions and thoughts which could cloud our understanding of who you are and to deeply understand and be, dis- be stirred by your convictions. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for giving us direct access to you through the word incarnate, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 which if you're flipping through is right after James, just a few books before Revelation. It says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. As we look at and break down these set of verses this morning, focusing on who God is and in turn who we are, we're going to focus on these three main points. First, that God is holy or set apart, and so we are holy or set apart as we look at verses 13 through 16. We'll look at The second point, the rules of engagement or relationship with God is the law and fulfilling it perfectly, which we'll investigate in verse 17. And finally, since we can't achieve perfection, we need Jesus as our Redeemer, which we will see in verses 18 through 21. Now, I will mention as we study these verses this morning, that we will be spending a majority of the time on the first point, and the first couple points will answer themselves near the end. So if you start thinking to yourself at any point, wow, are we really still on that first point? Uh, Don't worry, the final two points are, are a little quicker. But before we get too deep into these points, let's understand a little bit of our context. Right? Let's understand what's surrounding this set of verses. Now, being a book titled Peter, it clues us in that it was written by Simon Peter, a fisherman from Galilee and the direct disciple of Jesus Christ. And we know that Peter, 
after a brief time of grief and confusion after Christ's death, proclaimed the truth of the gospel boldly and consistently, that he constantly suffered by being threatened and abused and jailed because the Romans resolved that Christians should be proclaiming Caesar as Lord, not Jesus Christ. Now, this letter, which we understand was written around AD 65, just a couple years before Peter was crucified, upside down because he said he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner in which Jesus was, was written as a response to his own and other Christians' persecution. He was writing this letter to encourage and spur other followers of Christ, scattered and suffering because of their faith, to give them comfort and hope and urging continued loyalty to Christ despite this suffering. And in looking at 1 Peter as a whole, Peter reminds readers that Christ was a precious and chosen cornerstone upon upon whom the church is to be built and also was a stone which was rejected, causing those who are disobedient to stumble. He explains how Christians should live above reproach, imitating Christ as a model of obedience to God in the midst of suffering. He approaches the right, the attitude or the correct attitude that Christians should have about persecution. To expect it. To be thankful for the privilege of suffering for Christ. And to trust God for deliverance. Now, if you were with us in May of last year, you may recall as one of our few ventures away from the Sermon on the, on the Mount, that I actually preached from 1 Peter verses 1 through 13, right above what we read this morning. And as we studied those first 13 verses with one verse overlap, we understood it as Peter reminding his readers to be thankful to God for salvation the importance and foundation of faith, and that trials will refine our faith. And finally, as we investigated verse 13, which we have an overlap here this morning, he encouraged an eternal perspective by setting our hope on the grace coming with the return of Christ. And to believe in that grace despite our worldly circumstances. So, with that context in mind, let's begin to dig in, starting with verse 13. Therefore, right, which is hinting at, you need to look above here, right? Therefore, which is saying, because you can thank God for salvation, and because trials will refine your faith, prepare your minds for action, Be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And here is where that idea of eternal perspective, which we've talked about quite frequently in our study of Scripture, the idea that even when the world looks to beat us down and steal our joy, 
Our joy and our hope is not in this time and place. Right? Our hope and our joy is not in a Viking Super Bowl or a better job or more obedient children. Right? Our hope and our joy is not defined by our family, our jobs, our relationships, our health, our wealth, or lack thereof. Our hope and joy is defined by the grace given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, you may be thinking, wow, I have to wait until Jesus' return for joy and the fulfillment of hope? And the direct answer is both yes and no. Now, let's keep in mind that the context for this letter is that it is written to a people who have suffered the prospects of beatings and threats, people who've been jailed and killed for proclaiming that Christ is Lord, a people being scattered and chased from their homes who have years, for years, have had everything the world has provided taken from them. You see, if Peter would have reminded them that the grace of God was with them now, these people would have had a hard time believing it. Right? Based on their circumstances, they'd they'd have a hard time understanding that the grace of God is being presented to them now. So Peter reminds us in our broken, battered situations where it feels like it's never going to be better. When we've hit rock bottom, to place our hope on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, to extend that, not only is grace extended upon Christ's return, but at all times, as we see in 2 Corinthians verse 9 or chapter 9 verse 8 which says and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times having all that you need you will abound in every good work you see the grace that Christ provides is both at his second coming and in the here and now. John Piper, in his book titled Future Grace, provides that this idea of an eternal perspective and a grace based not on what God has done, but what God is promised in providing grace, both in every circumstance and upon his return, explains it this way. He says, grace is God's power, provision, mercy and wisdom, everything we need in order to do what he wants us to do five minutes, five weeks, five years, and 5,000 years from now. So in verse 13, we see a call for an eternal perspective, a hope on grace to be given us by Jesus both at his second coming and in the here and now. 
And we continue looking at verses 14, 15, and 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. We see the word here, obedience. Which, if you were here with us last Sunday, we talked about quite extensively. Right? As we looked at Matthew 7, verses 13 through 23. We looked last week at the idea that obedience is difficult. It requires discernment and must be uncompromised. And this morning, we see an, an encouragement in this obedience in that it is our obedience is already fulfilled. Peter says here, as obedient children, imparting as children of, of God obedience upon us. Right, Despite it being difficult, despite requiring discernment and being uncompromising, God's grace extends obedience to us. Obedience, as we continue in verse 14, to not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. By the grace of God, he has imparted on us an, an ability to, not to sin. It is being said, stop sinning, obedient children. By proclaiming Jesus Christ as your Savior, by putting your faith and trust and surrendering your life to him, you are born again and do not have to conform to the evil desires. The evil desires before we knew that we could put our hope and faith and trust in Jesus. Now, what are we being saved from by not living in ignorance, by allowing the Lord Jesus to be Lord of our lives? We are being saved from the bondage of sin and death both here on this earth and in eternity with God. Now that you are reborn, sin no more, obedient children. In Romans 12.2, we understand a tie to our newness in Christ Jesus and the reward of sinning no more. It reads, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. As obedient children not conforming to evil desires or patterns of this world, 
we are transformed and able to approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I hope that that idea is an encouragement to someone this morning. Or maybe for someone else, maybe even a challenge. I'm guessing there is someone here this morning, or maybe a few of us, who find ourselves saying, why do I continue to lapse into these sinful tendencies? Why does it feel like this situation or circumstance or scenario continues to happen? What am I doing wrong? Will I ever be able to stop lapsing into lustful desires or frustration when my kids out in public act out in public or disrespect for my spouse? for being selfish and not giving my time to other people? Will I ever be able to overcome these things? The answer is yes. Yes, once, twice, a thousand times over, yes. Because your identity is found in the perfection of Jesus Christ. You see, we are free to sin no more. We are bonded no more to conform to this world and bear the burden of continual sin and the guilt and shame that comes from that sin. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance you are transformed and able to know God's will for your life. And so we continue in verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, the word we see four different times in these two verses, the word holy, can be understood to mean a few different things. But over this past year, as we've approached the idea of holiness, we've approached it with the idea of it being set apart. Right, So these verses are saying, but just as you, just as he who called you is set apart, so be set apart in all you do. For it is written, be set apart because I am set apart. What sticks out here is the reason we are holy or set apart. It runs parallel to what we discovered and unpacked in the Beatitudes at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful. 
we are being asked to be set apart not because it's what we should do or are capable of doing or would be best for our well-being specifically, but because God has set us apart. You see, he is holy, and because our identity is God, in God, is of being made in his image and likeness, we are imparted with holiness. Just like we are imparted with being obedient because of the work of God, we are holy because we have been imparted it by the work of God. To agree that our identity is one of those who are set apart by God, we are his children rooted in an identity in him. And this idea of being holy or set apart would be familiar to the Jews whom Peter was writing. It says in verse 16, for it is written. And the reference there is one back to the Jewish law in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, which says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am am holy. Now, this reference to the Jewish law is very important. And it's why the Christian Bible still contains the Old Testament and Jewish law. Now, Peter could have just said, Jesus is the Son of God, he is set apart, your identity is in him, so you are set apart. But no. Right, he pulls out the Jewish law. He pulls out the story of God's chosen Jewish people and says, Look, Christians of today, you are holy because the Jewish law says that God promised many, many years ago that you are holy, that you would be set apart. Now, the, because of this, the law is not dead because of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. In fact, very much to the contrary. The law is more alive than ever, and hallelujah, it has finally been perfectly fulfilled. You see, the reference here is, reminds us that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law perfectly. Let me say that again. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it perfectly. Now, I think sometimes we shy away from the law, right? We shy away from the idea of commands 
In fact, sometimes the idea of law and commands get this, gets thrown in with this bad label and this other word with a bad rap, religion. Right? I've, I've heard it before in Bible-believing churches, in fact. I don't have religion. I have a relationship with Jesus. Or, I don't have to follow the law. I have Jesus. However, I warn us this morning, this is a slippery slope. And I think it needs some clarification and investigation. You see, because we love Jesus more and more, which comes from knowing him through the word, we will want to follow his commands. We will want to follow the law. We see in John chapter 14, verse 21, it says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. His commands are rooted in the law. Now, I may be preaching to myself a little here, but I think the reason why the idea of relationship versus the law or commands feels comfortable is because we sinfully choose our idea of relationship. Where law and religion require us to conform and submit and be obedient to a standard, relationships are more fluid, right? More open to interpretation. Relationships we can control, we can manipulate. See, if I'm honest, most of the relationships I've engaged in my life have been on my terms. Yeah, I'll help when I have time. Yeah, I'll go do that and spend time with you if that sounds fun to me too at that time. You know, I've built up some perceived credit in those relationships. Right? I I build up some credit and then when I can't meet that other person's expectations, I, I cash in those credits. Right? Do you want to do this? Well, no, but oh, thankfully I did that a few weeks ago. You know, I built up that credit. I can easily say no today. Right? Put it on my terms again. But you see, the honest truth is that every relationship has what we call the rules of engagement. Sometimes stated, usually assumed, always present. For example, when you have a relationship with a personal banker, as you discuss your financial situation with them, there is an assumption that they won't share your information to the public, right, or to others. So if you get done speaking with a banker and 
you found out that right after your discussion with them, they were sharing your financial information on a Facebook post. Huh. Yeah, I guess I don't really appreciate that you shared my credit score and account balances and my negative financial worth in your Facebook post. You'd probably be taken a little aback. Right? There's a rule of engagement there that says, hey, if I'm going to talk to you about my finances, it stays here. Right? This isn't public knowledge. There's a level of, of confidentiality here. Right? Or maybe it's the idea of the marriage covenant, right? Where we commit to being faithful and honest with our spouse. Right? So every relationship requires a set of rules of an, an engagement. And this brings me then to our second point. The rules of engagement or relationship with God is the law and fulfilling it perfectly. If you want a relationship with God, you have to abide by the law perfectly. We see in verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And we focus on the idea that it says God judges each man's work impartially. There's no gray area here. The gray area that can come with relationship. Right? No thought that we can adhere to some of God's standards and not to others. That we can negotiate or argue that we were pretty consistent with the important laws. No, we call on a father who judges each of our actions, and as we've seen from the Sermon on the Mount, our thoughts and motives and heart positions as well, with the black and white of you obeyed my commands or you did not. And we acknowledge and understand that because of our sin, we cannot completely obey. We are to live as strangers on earth. Again, relating to an eternal perspective and fleeing from the evil desires we had when we lived in ignorance of not knowing we needed a Savior. Because of our sinful flesh, we, need, we are in need of a Savior to have relationship with God. A Savior in Jesus. Which brings us to our third and final point. We can't achieve perfection, therefore we need Jesus as our Redeemer. Concluded, concluding in verses 18 through 21, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, 
but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. We were purchased with a price. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The one who actually and fully fulfilled the law perfectly died so that God could forgive our sins. The only way God can allow us as sinful, non-law-fulfilling creatures to live with him in eternity is to look at Jesus instead of us. And so we are to imitate, to be obedient, and to surrender our entire lives to Jesus so that God can see us perfectly and allow us to have relationship with him. The only way to live with God and have relationship with him in eternity is through surrendering to Christ. That through him, we believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him So our faith and hope are in God. So as I wrap up this morning, we broke down 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, focusing on an understanding that God is holy or set apart, so we are holy. With a hope in the grace of Jesus and an imparted identity of obedience. We understand that the rules of engagement or relationship with God is the law and fulfilling it perfectly. And ended with an understanding that since we can't achieve perfection in fulfilling the law as God requires, we need Jesus the lamb without blemish or defect who purchased us with his blood as our redeemer. At this point, you may be asking, so what? What do I do knowing that I am set apart by God, that I need Jesus as a savior? How do I achieve being the obedient child that God has imparted to me. For that, I have these three charges. One, pray. Pray for inward transformation and a desire to love Jesus. And as an overflow to be obedient to the law. I implore us to explore Scripture. Cherish our time with the Word of God. Make it a priority in our day-to-day life to spend time with Christ Jesus and His Word. To know Jesus, we go here. 
to understand how much Jesus loves us, we go here. To understand that our identity is in Jesus, we go here. Yet throughout the week, we struggle to go here. So I implore us, and Caleb preached it at the outset of the year, Buffalo City Church, the greatest threat to our church is not investing in the Word of God. The greatest threat to who we are is to forget who God is and that He has redeemed us. To forget that we are in need of a Savior. But if we spend time here, we cannot forget. The Lord will remind us of His glory over and over and over again. Thirdly, I encourage us to connect. As I mentioned at the outset, there are a lot of people here this morning that are not connected in community group, who are not truly living life with those around us. The local church and biblical community is God's vehicle for knowing him more and meeting the needs of his people. As I mentioned, someone around you may need you. And God is tapping you on the shoulder to say, help them. Right? Begin living life with them. Begin to understand their hurts, their trials, their sins. And be there to remind them that their identity is in Christ Jesus. Now, before I end with prayer, I'd like to end with this tidbit from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. He says, To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him but trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. Let's pray.